Wait, what? <laughs> oh my god. Wow, train wreck. It might be a shorty. Oh, you're starting to cut in and out again. Alright, do you have anything you can do about your connection? You're, like, cutting in and out real bad. You should make it better. Yeah, you cut out big time. We didn't hear any of that. Oh, Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. No, 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 no. Too late. Oh, my God. Christ almighty. Ah, oh, okay. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and guys, I'm not going to lie, I'm feeling a little worried. Uh-oh. I'm just glad you're going to be honest. Yeah, well, for this episode at least. So I just don't know how our fans are going to feel about this. First, we talk about Johnny Rivers, and we don't play Summer Rain. And now we're talking about the producers, and we're not even going to play Springtime for Hitler. It just feels wrong. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, Sean. Yeah, well, I'm just being honest, you know. This is, <laughs> this is me being honest. I, I think that you shouldn't be worried because we're not playing that song. <laughs> oh interesting okay i guess i can kind of reframe how i'm looking at this i'll record one let's go all right full steam ahead i'm co-host famous jeremy famous <laughs> not ruggles nope i'm done with that is that why you have a keyboard dangling from you right now well that's in case i feel inspired I'm faking it till I make it. But right now you have the Jeremy struggles. Oh. (laughs) Glad that's the first time I've heard that in my life. I just invented it. I am co-host Peter Cook. And I got to confess something. I've been getting burned out with all the extra work the podcast requires of me. But I have a hard time just walking away from things I'm invested in. Therefore, I've hatched a devious scheme to tank the podcast. What if we ask Ryan Werner to come back on the program to talk about an album by the producers? He's certain to get us canceled. Then we won't have to do the podcast anymore. You know what? This cannot fail. I can't think of a single way that this would fail. Great idea. Well, perfect, because our guest today... Returning to I'd Buy That for a Dollar is Ryan Werner. <laughs> Welcome back. Hi, everybody. I'm going to go now go on a Robert Evans-styled rant about Lee Meredith in a hot tub full of jello, now that we're talking about the uh, producer's film. Yeah. So Lee Meredith... No, I have nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dick, Sean, and Gene Wilder are staring at me with lust in their eyes. <laughs> the hot tub's getting warm and the jello is flowing. Like, why? 
No, here I am. I was pulling from the fourth season of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where Mel Brooks hires Larry David to star in the producers so that he'll bomb and get it canceled and Mel Brooks won't have to. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> so if you haven't figured out, Ryan has brought us what album today, Ryan? The self-titled debut by The Producers. New wave power pop crossover sensations with no hits. <laughs> the sensations might not be the word I would use to describe this band, but okay. Yeah, it's it's weird when you hear a cert, that certain kind of like like something that's produced and written in a way that it should be like designed to be popular, but then it isn't. But also you get it. Like when someone's like, I hate this friend of yours because he's an asshole. And then you just have to be like, I understand where you're coming from, but I like it anyway. <laughs> like there should have been hits on here, but like listening to it back, it's like, of course no one really liked this. Not yeah. that it's too difficult or like outside of the sphere of liking it. I liked it. I, I love it. I think it's a great record, but yeah, it just, it sounds like something I should have heard. Like every song I'm like, Oh, do I know this? Like, no, I've never heard this before in my life. I don't know. One of those bands that was like chasing trends and like nailed it, but just couldn't get that final step to get any sort of radio play or hit or anything like that. Like what he's got should have been a minor hit. I don't know if it charted or anything, but I've never heard it. <laughs> I was really surprised when I saw on Spotify when I was checking this out that that song which sounds like a hit it had listens in the only in the hundreds of thousands not <laughs> even in the millions right it's like when I was on talking about that Nona Hendrix record it's like this <laughs> like her song I, I think it was winning had like a couple 10,000 plays or whatever. And then the Santana cover had like 8 million plays. <laughs> it's like, I've never heard the Santana version of this. How? Yeah, that's how it goes. Well, Ryan, what song would you like to feature first? Let's start with the hit ish song. What he's got <laughs> track one. This should have been. That's what he's got. 
can hear what you're saying about it feeling like almost a hit. I kept getting that feeling listening to this album, like it's sort of walking this line of like cliched or kind of chasing sounds, but then something really quirky and strange would pop out. And it's like these rough edges that they just forgot to sand away before putting this record out or something. Uh, I think if you told me like it's a long, like a demo of a song from the first two police records, I'd be like, okay, cool. I kind of, yeah, that makes sense. But if you also told me it was just a no name song from the mannequin three soundtrack, I'd be like, okay, yeah, like that, that also makes sense. You could also tell me that it's like a secret collaboration between Cheap Trick and the police. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that makes sense. I, I think all the touch points of what they were trying to do are there. I don't know. It's also that like 80, 81, that's like the, those like golden years of American power pop kind of, you know, that like post knack. Everybody's jumping on that sort of sound. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then they also have the quirkiness going on and then a little bit of that kind of new romantics like new wave type vibe it's like they could fit more in the straight ahead rock but they also had some weird goofy energy going on yeah it's weird i mean i don't know if it's a, like neither fish nor fall sort of thing where it, i mean wondering why things don't get popular is kind of a dead end as we've learned from this podcast time and time again you know why are why are Dinah Washington records worth nothing? You know, when she was the biggest star of <laughs> her fucking time. But there's just something about, there's something about this record where I don't understand why, why it never got big because it does have those rough edges that Jeremy's talking about. But is it any, is it any more rough than like, I don't know, a Robert Palmer record? <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, listening to it, it had like one foot in new wave, but maybe another foot in the jangle pop, more college indie rock of that early eighties time. You know, th this is, and this, this band is out of Atlanta, which, you know, that Georgia had some noteworthy uh, college rock bands starting up right around that time. REM comes to mind in Athens. Yeah, and then on the other hand, there's some moments and songs on this record that feel like they could have maybe toured with some of the early hair metal bands. You can almost hear some of the like Quiet Riot influence or Slade, probably more likely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple points where they shred on the guitar. Yeah. And it's kind of got the quirkiness of fellow Georgians B-52s. Mm -hmm. yeah, they got a little bit of everything. It's almost like it's a musical gumbo. Oh, <laughs> God. Why did I? <laughs> you walked right into that, Jeremy. Yeah. You, you, Man, I set it you, up. You prepared I, that gumbo. God. I'm going to go ahead and be done now. I'll see you guys later. You can finish the episode without me. All right. Have a good one, Sean. <laughs> Peace. He's done, Bo. <laughs> well, that... Uh, last song we listened to also, What's He Got? I found I had to like dig up some pretty obscure interviews with band members because there was not a ton of definitive information. But uh, Van Temple, the guitar player for the producers, 
uh, was being interviewed and remembers they all thought that that song should have been the lead single, but they were told that it was too punky. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) And this is in 1981 when there's like plenty of hardcore punk bands out there that would make that sound like candy coated. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, you know, this is around the same time as black flag damaged. I don't really hear a whole lot of that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll share what information I did dig up. This band, as mentioned, was formed in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was around 1979, 1980, right in that window. And they initially started as a Beatles cover band and went by the name Cartoon. Weird. I wouldn't have expected that to be their beginning point. Yeah. They started that way and then started doing originals that were going over quite well. The bass player for the producers on this album, Kyle Henderson, was previously in an R&B type band called Whiteface and joined the producers on New Year's Eve 1980 when the original bassist got too drunk to play and he stepped in to do the show with them and then just kind of became the new guy. That's a pro tip to aspiring bassists. Go out to shows on New Year's Eve and likely (laughs) the bassist for a band will be getting too drunk and you can just step right in. (laughs) Find your place. Learn from the producers. Yeah, and there wasn't... I couldn't find a lot of like background information on most of the members other than in that interview with Van Temple. He mentions that he was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and grew up on country music. His, wow, he sounds like guest Jake Watkins. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, except Van Temple's father was a country music DJ and was also, uh, he became a Grand Ole Opry promoter. So he got to be backstage and see these huge country artists because his dad would have uh, either sick tickets or access to the backstage. So yeah, he grew up on country and started playing guitar at age 11. And you're not skeptical of that, that age, 11 is an okay age to That's start a learning. Good an normal age to start learning the guitar. Jeremy is often a non believer in the super young prodigies that start at three and four. I do, I do hate that. <laughs> yeah, it makes all of us look bad, right? I also make myself look bad. <laughs> yeah, you could do that yourself. <laughs> yeah, I don't need a four-year-old playing Halloween like so I can be like, cool, that's that's great. I I had to be in a doom band for years because I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Van Temple started playing music pretty young. Got with these fellas after moving to Atlanta, Georgia for college. Uh, as we mentioned, Kyle Henderson is the bass player who was in the right place at the right time. Uh, You also have 
maybe the most cartoon-like character in the band, Wayne Famous. Fucking love Wayne Famous. Whose real name is Wayne McNutt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this band changed for me once I watched live performances and videos and saw <laughs> Wayne Famous doing his thing. That's a born performer right there. Yeah, so he's the keyboard player, and as is hinted to towards the beginning of the episode, he would wear it on him. This was kind of pre-keytars or people sensibly doing this, and he would kind of strap it and play it so he could be, like, up and moving. And decidedly not a rock star look to him. Yeah, he's got, like, a dad look to him. He's got the full Costanza. <laughs> yeah. He's the least Wayne Famousy looking person I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine some, you know, wild flamboyant character when I heard the name and man, that that really sold me once I scoped Wayne Famous. And we got one last player in this band, Brian Holmes who plays drums and also sings. They all sing. And uh, he went on to play with a couple bands called The Surf and Nine Times Blue. But, yeah, none of these players... Well, no, I forgot. I did stumble on this amazing fact. Van Temple has released one solo song separate from this band. On Waffle Records. Really? (laughs) Yeah. It's called 50 Years and Counting. And for those who don't know, Waffle Records is Waffle House's record label for their uh, mostly breakfast-themed songs that play in their (laughs) restaurants. Yeah, the the B-side to that Van Temple 50 Years and Counting single is a group called Northwest Territory doing their classic song, Waffle House Steaks. Now, I'm guessing, I don't (laughs) think that we've really addressed this with our listeners or on the podcast, but Sean probably just knew that off the cuff because Sean is, I don't know if you still are, Sean, but you were at one time a big fan of Waffle House. (laughs) I mean, I was born a big fan of Waffle House, and I will die a big fan of Waffle House, but I somehow don't own a single release on Waffle Records, so if anybody's wondering what to get me for any future birthday and Christmas, I would really love to have the complete run of Waffle Records. For a moment, I thought you were going to say you were born in a Waffle House. (laughs) Possibly. I don't really remember it, so... We can just kind of retcon that a bit if we want. If you're okay with that. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I was born in a Waffle House on a stormy night in Georgia. I don't know if that collecting everything on the Waffle Records is more or less worse than me trying to collect everything on Wyndham Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a few good Wyndham Hill records. Uh, I have yet to find out if there's any good things on Waffle Records, but... uh, I'm going gonna, gonna to do the research. I did see that one of the later members of this band, Tim Smith, played with the power pop band uh, Jellyfish. Are any of you guys familiar with that band? No. I am familiar with another band he played with, though. Tim Smith? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's Cheryl Crow, but he also was apparently in a band with Noel Gallagher. 
Oh, well, those, those people you might have heard of more than my jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, jellyfish is a band I'm only vaguely familiar with. Weren't they kind of like a jangly pop slate, like 60s psych throwback? Group? Yeah. Yeah. Am I right. Yeah. Okay. More in the late 80s, early 90s. One of the groups that was doing that at that time. Yeah. That was for a period after this album, though. When the original bassist Kyle Henderson uh, became a born again Christian, left to go do Christian rock, and then eventually kind of came back and they formed the original band much later. We'll get into the, the why there in a bit, but before we go any further, I want to play another song. That's a good idea. Let's do that. Ryan, what song yes. would you like to give the people? You know, going back to these rough edges here, let's maybe go with uh, Boys Say When, Girls Say Why. All right. Side B, track five. solid song craft and harmonies on that one lyrically i didn't know what to make of it initially but they seem to flip the gender stuff around the gender dynamics that they're addressing around by the end of the song they flip it around but it still is like of that weird kind of bad boomer humor sort of thing like they, they do switch it from boys say one girl say why to like you know, girls say when and boys say why, but it's the dude, like in the first half, the guy's trying to get laid and the girl's like, why? And then they finally do it. And then she's like, we should get married. And he's like, why? <laughs> you know, it's, it just sounds like someone made a song out of that old thing your mom would say about like, why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? And they're like, you know what? That's great. Let's, let's run with that for the theme of this song here. 
yeah, I, I definitely had a little bit of cringe reactions when I started focusing in on the lyrics. But yeah, the harmonies solid. <laughs> it's great. As as they started as a Beatles tribute band, I don't hear the Beatles in those harmonies. It sounds like they were definitely stolen from, you know, Motown and Soul and stuff like that. And similar, probably pulling from the same places that Huey Lewis was pulling on those first, I mean, not even the first few records, but, you know, everything up until they actually started doing full albums of old soul songs and stuff like that. So they're in Atlanta, Georgia. The producers were talking the band, not the movie, not the play. Not an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Not that either. And... Things are going pretty well for them in Atlanta, but their manager's like, hey, I got you guys an audition with Tom Worman in New York City. So they drop what they're doing, all drive together to New York City and play a handful of songs for the famous producer, Tom Worman, who, after hearing the songs, pretty much immediately signs them. Yeah, I can imagine that, yeah, there's definitely something going on here with commercial potential. Yeah, and if you look at Tom Worman's, he was behind quite a few larger acts, and he produced this album, but he started off with Ted Nugent, and then uh, produced a bunch of things from Cheap Trick, which makes sense when mm-hmm. you hear this. Yeah, Definitely. And kind of shifts to like more hair metal stuff later, like Molly Hatchet, Twisted Sister, Motley Crue. Stuff, yeah, but still stuff with a pop edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of has a sound and it's sort of like rock and pop combining, which this band makes sense with that. He was the Bob Rock before there was Bob Rock. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> So this album is their debut album. It was released in 1981 on Portrait Records, which is uh, some type of subsidiary of CBS. That record label went on to put out music by Cyndi Lauper, Sade, Joan Baez. Yeah, just the fact that they call it Portrait, it, it sounds like they're going for a slightly more artsy crowd. Yeah, which makes sense with the kind of weird, edgier, goofy nature of this band. Uh, They also caught a wave of, you know, an early taste of success because they had one of the early music videos on MTV. Oh, yeah. This is coming out right around the time MTV's getting started. Yeah, their song, What She Does To Me, was one of the early music videos. And... Because of the popularity of that music video, they were invited to play on MTV's New Year's Rockin' Eve, which had like Duran Duran and other big artists at that time. Yeah, I watched a little bit of footage from that. Did you watch the interview? No, I didn't get that far. (laughs) It's a pretty great interview where Wayne Famous and Van Temple are clearly intoxicated and <laughs> New Year's Eve. <laughs> yeah. And like barely following what the interviewers are asking them and just kind of rambling about whatever they they're like they talked about 
taking a bunch of fans to a McDonald's and like asking for steaks, but then they had to give them cheeseburger. It was it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like they came to their fully realized selves in that moment. <laughs> yeah, they're like right on the verge of success. Well, they've kind of they've got some success. They're kind of on the verge of like big time fame, I'd say. And they follow with another record in 1982, You Make the Heat. And they're touring all over the country at this point. They think they're kind of on the precipice as well. They're like recognizing this and putting pressure on the label to put more money behind them and promote them, which results in them getting dropped. It's all starting to come together now. I'm trying to figure out how they came up with their top eight on MySpace because the producer's MySpace page is still up. Uh, (laughs) Any guesses? (laughs) Any guesses as to who's who's in there? Um, Cheap trick. No, no, no. Think uh, think less. When you say, I, I have to, for our listeners, MySpace was... Oh, fuck, I forgot, yeah. The, you're talking the top eight friends. Class of 03, baby. The person in their number one slot is a defunct Stevie Nicks page that takes you to like a 404 error. <laughs> <laughs> then the official Four Non Blondes page. Then the MySpace for Robert Tepper. Does that ring a bell for anybody? No. Oh, that's that sounds so vaguely familiar. It should because he wrote "No Easy Way Out" from Rocky Four. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. And then uh, in the fourth space is the actual Stevie Nicks MySpace, <laughs> <laughs> still active. <laughs> yeah, still active. And then Don uh-huh. Henley. <laughs> Mr. Mister, the Australian like synth power pop band, real life, and then a Pink Floyd tribute band called Spectrum Space, and that's it. Well, I, we can see where they view themselves as the the company they see themselves within. <laughs> so that's the sound they were going for—a combination of those influences. Okay, I mean, Mr. Mister makes sense. Two Stevie Nicks pages fucking doesn't. <laughs> Real life makes sense. Yeah. Of all the bands that they reminded me of while listening to this record, Pink Floyd was not one of them. <laughs> Did I ever tell the story in this podcast about going to see Queensryche and then the lead singer Jeff Tate busted out a saxophone and they covered Welcome to the Machine? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't believe so. Is that the is that the entire story? <laughs> <laughs> that is the entirety of it yeah and then uh my unenjoyment of it for what is going on 17 years now. <laughs> still feeling it's, it's, it it was not great i'm still feeling it. <laughs> yeah it's not great after their drop from the label they self-released their third album run for your life in 1985 So 1989, they get to record again with a major label, 
They get signed to MCA. Then two weeks before the album is supposed to come out, it gets shelved and they get tossed. They get dropped again. Yeah, they're really fighting. They're fighting an uphill battle here. And this this is like the entirety of the 80s that we're talking about at this point. Yeah. And one just completely unlucky thing I saw is that one of the executives from the label they were on in the early 80s had just been hired shortly before they got dropped at MCA. So I feel like it was probably him like yeah. connecting the dots and looking at this. Yeah. Oh, that I just wonder if Wayne Famous was just like completely belligerent in meetings with the label. <laughs> Maybe he ruined it. <laughs> just couldn't contain himself. <laughs> Hard to say. He got sick of being Wayne Famous. He's like, I'm going to be Wayne Obscure. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what happened. They broke up briefly after that. Then have been, uh, they've continued playing and recording, though. They got back together after a few years with the original lineup. They brought Kyle Henderson back. And in 2001, the unreleased fourth album, Colacanth, did actually come out. Um, They've actually recorded a few other albums since then. They're still playing on occasion, but they're also like off doing like real life stuff. (laughs) Wayne Famous is a fucking cab driver. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wayne's been driving cab. He's been driving for almost 20 years, it said, though. So like not long after. (laughs) Yeah, like not long after. They got dropped the first time. He just started driving cab. Uh, Brian Holmes, the drummer, runs like a carpet and flooring business. Uh, Van Temple teaches music and still plays out with local bands. I didn't really say what Kyle's up to other than they fly him in for shows because he's in Wisconsin now. He's probably a dairy farmer. One can hope. (sighs) I had to have played with him at some point in the in the aughts or tens. I'm just trying to think of how it could have happened. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the story of the producers. Uh, Tom Warman, the famous producer of the producers, said that not making the producers more famous was the biggest disappointment of his career. And one of the main reasons he left CBS Records. Wow. Well, he felt strongly about their potential. Yeah, that quote kind of surprised me. How you were saying, like, they struggled throughout the entirety of the 80s trying to get, you know, hits. It's like in, in 83, after they put out that record and got dropped, it's like, what was the... I mean, that second record is great. There's songs on there that are better than and more deserving of being songs, hit songs than the, we had in like 1983. Like songs on there are better than fucking Jeopardy by the Greg Kin Band or like Making Love Out of Nothing at All by Air Supply or like whatever, you know. Like it's not better than True by Spandau Ballet or something, but it's, it's a, they're great songs and they should have been on the radio. I don't understand how, how you can't make that band 
if not famous, then at least popular and have a career. Well, yeah, and I had never heard this album or to my knowledge, any of these songs yet. They felt pretty familiar. They have that familiarity of hit songs to them. So it is, it is weird that they didn't catch on a little more. Well, Ryan, let's play them another song. Yes. Let's do uh, What She Does To Me, the song that was like, you know, closest to being their hit, I guess. Yeah. And in parentheses, Diana song. Side B, track one. That's a good example of a song that's straightforward enough, yet they have little intricacies and turnarounds and stuff like that that make it just go stand out a little bit more than like a straightforward power pop song. Yeah, it's funny how the things that make it unique and kind of interesting also feel like the things that may have been like the barriers to them becoming superstars. Yeah, that's true. They were probably meant to be more of like a underground sensation, but they weren't marketed that way. Yeah. So instead, I feel like you you get bands like that, that somehow get stuck in between. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. They're kind of, yeah, stuck in the middle. I did find a little bit lit from an interview that there is not a Diana, but that song is about a Dana. <laughs> I saw that. Isn't it one of the partners of one of the members? Yeah, the now wife of the drummer, Brian Holmes, who was, uh, you know, they were dating at the time. Maybe s- syllabically 
Dana didn't work as well as Diana. Or maybe they she was like, you can't say my name in a song. Yeah. A little privacy. It could be like uh, Beth by Kiss, you know. What's the story there? I'm sure Sean's itching to have a Kiss story on the podcast. You guys don't all know that story? Right, come on. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, for, I think it's the fourth time I've told a kiss story on this podcast. Well, it was a uh, Peter Chris wrote about his wife Becky, and it was called Beck. Beck, and then yep. they're like, "You can't." Everyone's going to think you're singing a fucking love song about Jeff Beck. You need to change this. <laughs> so he changed it to Beth. Yeah, or you're they're, they're going to think you're singing about David Campbell's son Beck. <laughs> That's exactly what. That's they what they would have said at the. At the time, Beck would have just been David's little son. (laughs) Good grief. For the the reference there, see our first episode, Jimmy Spiris, Isle of View. Jesus Christ, (laughs) Peter. Uh, Now I'm just thinking about Jimmy Spiris. Was he the uncle? He was the uncle of Penelope? Is that what what it was? Brother. Brother. Okay. Jesus Christ. That's a good episode. But like... I don't understand how this doesn't get picked up. Like none of these songs, especially that one, don't get picked up for like a soundtrack or anything, you know, similar to like how, not that you need to build an entire movie around that song or a song like it, but like Maniac and Flashdance or Kenny Loggins doing whatever he does in every movie in the 80s. But like it, <laughs> a song like that should have some sort of record, like put it in fucking Porky's 2 or something. I don't know. Just like it should be somewhere. <laughs> you're not wrong it could have happened it should have happened yeah but it didn't and here we are it still could pro tip to (laughs) producers of movies right now yeah put it in scanners i don't care like whatever they've got the i'd buy that bump better ride that wave hollywood come on (laughs) it always happens well sean yeah we turn all of us collectively our attention towards you. Interesting. You've got I'm feeling pretty famous right now. Wayne famous. Nearly, mm. nearly Wayne famous. Could you provide us with perhaps a few similar albums? I think I think I could do that. I think I could take a little time out of my busy schedule and recommend a few things for you real quick. So the first one is a record we've talked about before. Men at Work, Business as Usual, 1981. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I definitely thought of Men at Work when checking this out, at least the sound of it overall. They aren't quite as, uh, you know, political and whatnot as Men at Work. I think both bands pull from the police pretty heavily. True. True. (laughs) Men at Work and the police were the first two things I thought of. My second recommendation is actually another record from 1981 that we've talked about before. Peter, you want to take a guess? It's one that we've covered on the podcast. Yes, also from 1981. And it's similar to this record, believe it or not. Was that the um, Corgis? No, but that would be a great one. (laughs) The record I was thinking about is one we talked about even further back in the podcast. But it's not Jimmy Spheris. The Human League? No, another good guess. I was thinking of something a little bit more straightforward. That would be The Kinks. Give the people what they want oh, from 1981. Sure. I, wow. I, I was instrumental in having Wes Wheat come on and talk about that album. But 
I almost forgot that we did it. That was so long ago. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good one for sure. It would be hard to be a rock band in 1981 that had great harmonies and not be influenced by the kinks. So yeah. And my final suggestion is going a little bit more obscure. This is uh, a record I bought fairly recently. And one of the few straight ahead rock records I bought last year, a band called the Lambrettas beat boys in the jet age from 1980, just a little bit more of a punk edge and, uh, you know, less of an American sound. But if you're looking for some obscure kind of power pop that has a little bit of similarity to this, that's my recommendation. Yeah. Something about that. I'm not familiar, but it, for some reason I automatically think it sounds like the jam. There's definitely a heavy jam similarity with that record. Ryan mentioned it really early on in this episode, but one of the ones I thought of that I'd like to add is The Knack, Get The Knack, which is mm-hmm. still a cheap record. Which is nuts because it's top to bottom fucking awesome. Uh, a band that we haven't mentioned yet that has some definite similarities is The Romantics. Another band that's very easy to find on the cheap still. What I like about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that self-titled Romantics is, is very good. I think for like, you know, records under $5 that you can find that are going to fit in, in with this. Cool for Cats or Argy Bargy by Squeeze would both be great. Mm-hmm. I think you can still pick up that first Marshall Crenshaw for fairly cheap. Uh, and then more of like an obscure one would be uh, King Cool by Donnie Iris. It's his uh, second album, but he was in the band Wild Cherry, known for play the funky music white boy but yeah he's got this great kind of new wavy power pop solo stuff Ooh, that sounds like something to check out well ryan what do you have to recommend our listeners check out that you've been up to creatively i haven't been doing anything except remodeling this giant apartment that I moved into above a pinball bar for the past nine months. So I had three records that were going to come out uh, last year and none of them, none of them came out because I've been up to my fucking armpits and drywall. So you can find me at the flock of seagulls concert in St. Louis on January 25th. That's the next music thing I'm doing. There's a Depeche Mode tribute (laughs) band called strange love opening. (laughs) Ooh, well, I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) Once you mentioned the Depeche Mode tribute band, I mean, they picked a good song to go with their name, so uh, I'm sold. Yeah, I mean, they picked the Bondage song. It's great. Well, thanks for taking some time out of your drywalling to bring us this record that I'm sure none of us were at all familiar with, and it's a good record. I recommend our listeners give it the whole thing a listen. Thanks for having me on. What song did you want to finish the episode on? Let's go out on Sensations. All right, Sensations. The guitars kind of remind me of 80s Rush. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing with this record is you'll, you think you have it figured out and then a whole different direction is introduced. I, I noticed that. <laughs> So very cool. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Famous. 
and Ryan Anus. 